Welcome to the Lighthouse Community Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope today's teaching will encourage you in your faith and help you develop an increasing desire to walk with God. Let's listen in. Hey, uh, my name is Matt. If I haven't met you yet, uh, I'd love to meet you in person. Uh, so make sure you grab me when we're done here. You can shake my hand. Uh, we are in a series called The Anointed One, and, uh, and we're studying through just three chapters in the book of Matthew, chapters 8, 9, and 10. Um, and uh, I want to say welcome to our online community. We're glad that you're here um, and joining us, and we hope that you'll find a way uh, to be able to join us in person uh, very soon. I've built a lot of different things in my life. A lot of things, <laughs> and maybe more things than, than, than I remember, but I've never built a chair. Yeah, I've never built a chair. Anybody here a chair builder can actually build a chair? Okay, I'm, I'm glad Steve, no, that's not good. Uh, we, have, we have a lot of different things that people can build, but, I, but I've, never built, I've never built a chair. So I never thought about the blessing of a sturdy chair until one day. <laughs> that day came. I was preparing to preach a, a funeral of a lady that I had never met, and that was awkward enough in the moments I was getting ready to preach, but it got worse in being awkward that I never met her, because when I visited the family to discuss the funeral and uh, sat down at the dining room table, we sat down in these antique chairs. And as we were sitting there, uh, I decided, and it's just one of those unconscious things, and we all do it, I decided to maybe tip back a little bit in that chair, um, and only to my chagrin, I found myself on the floor because that chair had just broken in half. Uh, and it wasn't because I'm not a very big person, it was just the chair just kind of fell apart, uh, that kind of thing, but it snapped in half, and it was pretty mortifying uh, for me in the moment. Now, I think I'm capable of sitting, of, of sitting, of sitting anywhere, now I'm not capable of sitting anywhere now without looking at the quality of what I'm sitting on. Here's my point. Every time I sit down, I place my faith in that chair to support my substantial weight. Whether I truly or sincerely believe that the chair will hold me, it makes absolutely no difference at all. It's not the sincerity or the intensity of my faith that keeps me upright. It is the object of my faith that keeps me upright. It's the chair. And to bring it into the scripture today, truth is centered, the truth, true faith is centered in a person, and it is not on me, it is not on you. True faith is centered on Jesus Christ, the one who died, and the one who died the death that I deserved to die on a cross, and was raised back into life, offering me and us new life and who rules and reigns in heaven for eternity. And one day, those of us who are in him will be with him. So here's a question. What does real faith look like? What does it really look like for somebody to put their faith in God? What are some of the barriers that maybe uh, somebody putting their faith in, in God? And how can we overcome those barriers to putting faith in God? This morning, I want to try to answer some of those questions. And so if you haven't turned there yet, uh, grab your Bible or click on your device over to Matthew uh, chapter 9. And uh, we're going to pick up uh, in Matthew 9. It's going to be on the screen as well uh, as we read through these verses. But I'm going to pick up in verse 1. It says this. It says, And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought him a paralytic man lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he saw the paralytic, the paralytic take heart. He said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. 
But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men." We see uh, another miracle that Matthew, that Matthew describes here. And this, ma- this miracle is actually a series of miracles that Jesus is, uh, is, is doing that Matthew's, Matthew's talking about here. But he heals this paralyzed man. And the details of this account actually aren't, aren't largely in the book of Matthew. They're actually, uh, a lot of them are actually in the book of Mark. And the way that Mark describes it is actually like this. He said that this was the house that they were in and the room was so packed that nobody could actually get in the front door at all. So his friends went on the roof. Maybe you've heard this story before. You know the narrative of what it says. They went up on the roof, and it says that they lowered him down to Jesus. They get up on the roof, and they take some roof tiles out, and they lower him down to Jesus. I want you to get the picture in your mind here of really what this looks like. Just imagine we're sitting here, and suddenly the roof opens up. Imagine it's actually a room where we're shoulder to shoulder. There's no room. Nobody can fit in those back doors. You can't walk down the aisles. You're right here. In fact, I could step down there and be right in your face. Be right there. We're all together. And suddenly this guy, and everyone's kind of going, what is going on here? And this guy gets lowered down here, and it's an awkward moment. I'm guessing that everything just stopped. Nobody was talking. Jesus stopped teaching in the moment. People were just fixated on this guy coming to the roof. And I got to tell you, it was probably pretty awkward for the guy being lowered through the roof too, because it says he was on a mat and it was being, being kind of lowered down. And I'm guessing it was like these four corners of, with rope and kind of lowering him down to the floor until he got to the floor. Boom. And there he is. And everyone just kind of stands there and looks. And for a moment, I'm guessing there was that awkward silence. I'm guessing that the man on the mat was a little, was a little bit uncomfortable too. I'm guessing that he was apprehensive and maybe even afraid because he had actually done something that was really probably not okay in, in maybe polite culture to do that. And my guess is that Jesus noticed it. And he noticed it in real time. And so what he did is he spoke into the silence and into the moment. And he said this, verse 2, the second part says this, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. That's what he said. He said, take heart, my sons, your sins are forgiven. He starts with the simple words to help him relax and to know that it's going to be okay. He's saying, don't be afraid. He said, I don't, he basically saying, I don't mind that you interrupted me. Something good is about to happen. I can just hear the teachers of the law in that moment. In that moment, they're there and nobody's saying anything. They're just watching, but I can just hear the silence in their minds going, What? What, 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 is just, what, is, what is happening here? Did, he, did I hear him correctly? Did I hear him say that his sins are forgiven? Nobody but God can do that. So what is he doing when he said that? Wait, is he claiming to be God? Are you kidding me? Blasphemer. What is wrong with this guy? Why does he think he can do that? What is this? What is going on here? See, for this Jewish man, the fact is, is that the punishment for blaspheming would have been they would have taken him outside and they would have picked up large rocks and they would have thrown them at him until he died. They would have called it stoning him. And here's the thing about these, about these, about these Jewish leaders is that they were actually right. They were actually right. Only God does have the power to forgive sin. 
Who does he think he is? So if he can forgive sin, or he just claims he can, then, wow, he must, he must be God, or he's a blasphemer. And Jesus is about to prove that he can forgive sin, and therefore, in this group of people, prove that he is God. So even though the Pharisees said nothing, it says that Jesus perceived their thoughts, and it picks up in verse, in, in, uh, in verse yeah, later on, it says, why do you have these evil thoughts in your mind? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven, or to say stand up and walk? In verse 6, it says, I'm going to prove to you that I can forgive sins, He says that, I'm going to prove to you I can forgive sin. And then the next verse says that he told the man, what? Get up, take your bed, and go home. And the man does just that. He was completely cured in that moment. It says that the people were astonished, and it says that they praised God who had given such authority to this man. There are a couple things to highlight here that I want to kind of point out here. First is a couple of questions that you might be, yeah, there are a couple of questions that you might be thinking in this. And the real problem, and underlies this, is that the real problem with humanity is something called sin. And sin here at Lighthouse, the way we define that and the way the scripture defines it is to say that it's leading ourselves. When we put ourselves in the position of leading our own lives, we are sinning. The Bible says there's a way that seems right to a man, but it leads to death. And that's ultimately what happens when we lead ourselves, is death and destruction. And Jesus brings this issue to the front. Now, the question that might, might, might come from this is to ask, is there a connection between the man's sin and physical brokenness? Does this imply that somehow all sickness is linked to sin, so the healing always has a connection to the other? Well, the truth is, Matthew doesn't exactly give us an answer, answer in this at all, but he, what he, because what he's doing is he's trying to make the point that Jesus has the power to heal and that he has the power to forgive sin. But I'll say this, that all sickness is not connected to the sinfulness of a person. An example is in John chapter 9 and the healing of a blind man. I'm going to put the verse up on the screen, and starting in verse 1, it says, And as he passed by, the man, the man saw, uh, he saw a blind man from birth. And the disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he's born blind? And Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. To complete the answer, it's true that some sickness is related to sin. In fact, if we step back in the full, from the full teaching of Scripture, it is clear that all sickness flows from the fall of man in, gen, in Genesis, and, and, and the result of, of, uh, is a sinful condition that we all have. Jesus clearly tells them that they have this, that they have this in the instance in John 9, and that sin is not, correct, is not, is not connected to the malady. A fair conclusion that we don't have a lot of time or time enough to unpack here is that sometimes our brokenness, the illness that you can't explain, the things that are broken in us that we can't get past, that slow us down, that keep us down, that illness cannot be explained, can be, cannot be explained has its roots in God's desire to reveal himself in you. What if being broken is just an opportunity to see God as ultimately in control and sovereign? and to put your faith in him and to trust him. The question I started with was, what does real faith look like? Folks, that's what real faith looks like. But another question that might come out of this is the question of, does forgiveness of sin by Jesus always lead to physical healing and good health? 
Well, there's a lot of teachers in our world that are teaching that it does. And I'm just going to tell you, that's just a bunch of hooey. That's just a bunch of hooey. It's not true. It's not true at all. The answer to this question, though, however, is yes and no. Now you're going, Matt, you just contradicted yourself. Well, let, me, let me explain what I, what I mean by that. Yes, in the ultimate sense. Here's what I mean by this. All those who have faith in Jesus that have received God's forgiveness and God's forgiveness of sin will one day be delivered from all physical manifestations of sin. And this, if this is true of you, your resurrection body will be free of all the effects of sin. Imagine that. How amazing will that be someday for that to be the case? But the answer is also no. If what you mean is by, mean by this connection is that there is a right for the Christian to have perfect health now. The fact is, is that not all do. If you look around, you will see it, that most of us have things in our lives, things in our bodies, we're going, I wish that was better, but it's not. And, the, and ultimately, in the end, 100% of people die. And the fact is, is that it's completely untrue to say that that would be the case. Matthew's point is that Jesus raised the sin question because the final point was that sin is a problem that we must deal with and treat it right, or we could ignore it completely. There's no difference for many of us today and even the people in these verses today. Um, we do any of three things when it comes to sin. We ignore it. We blame our sin on somebody or something else, our, our genetics, our environment, or whatever it may be. Or maybe we just pretend like it doesn't exist. We just, we just completely, you know, put it out, put it out of there at all. It doesn't matter at all. But let me be very clear. I just want to be perfectly clear in this. Your sin does matter. Your sin does matter. It is the source of all the problems, and Jesus takes it seriously. Takes it very seriously. The second thing to highlight here is that Jesus' authority to forgive sin proves that he is God. After seeing the miracle, the people realized that Jesus had been given some pretty amazing power and authority. But Matthew points out more, more than this. He tells us that the Pharisees accused Jesus of blasphemy since only God can forgive sin. And since Jesus forgave sin, his, his yet spoken claim to be God is actually proven in real time. And this is why this example of healing is so important in Scripture and the main issue here was the ability of Jesus to forgive, to forgive sin. Anybody can claim to forgive sin. Anyone could say your sins are forgiven. This would mean that, that we would not only, that we are not only going to choose not to dwell on the offense. I could say I could forgive you, but that means that we're not going to choose to dwell on the offense, but that you actually have the authority to absolve sin and say that you will not receive the punishment that sin deserves. And that's what Jesus did. Jesus forgave sin. We can't do that. We could say it, but nobody would take it seriously except the people like the Pharisees who were scandalized by blasphemy. But what if Jesus joined forgiveness of sin to physical healing and then actually performed the healing? This would, in my mind, substantiate the claim that he's God. The amazing thing is that the rest of the people who were there, verse 8 says that in that moment they were filled with awe they were amazed by what they had witnessed. And this means that somehow God himself is with us. Two opposite responses are pretty remarkable. The way that people responded in this moment is pretty remarkable. So when we talk about Jesus' authority to forgive sin, this theme carries into the next section too that picks up in verse 9. And it's the story of a man by the name of Matthew. 
And it picks up here, it says this. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard this, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is Matthew's testimony of his first encounter with Jesus and what he did about it. There's a similarity between this story of Matthew and the story of the paralyzed man that Jesus healed, and he in that he recognized that he needed to be healed, but what he really needed to be healed from, both of them, was, was sin. And in the eyes of the Pharisees, Matthew was a fellow, Matthew and his fellow colleagues was someone who was just a tax collector and sinner, somebody that was untouchable and unreachable. And just to be clear, the Pharisees would have had nothing to do with them. They would have rejected him completely. And since Jesus came to save sinners, Matthew included himself in this pool as somebody who was far from God and was saved only by the grace of God. I read something this week about a man, uh, um, uh, yeah, about, about a, a guy who compared Matthew to what he was doing to something that uh, a man by the name of Rembrandt did. Maybe you've seen the painting that Rembrandt did called The Crucifixion. I was going to put it on the screen, but it's actually this, it's really kind of dark uh, black and white or sepia painting that's, that, that we have pictures of. And as you look at it, you see this amazing image of Jesus on the cross, and you have a thief on both sides. You have soldiers all around, and you've got some on horseback, and you've got this crowd of people all around. But if you look down in the lower right-hand corner, maybe you've seen this before. If not, go look at it. It's pretty amazing. There's a picture in the corner. It's a painting as one who has benefited fitted from the death of Jesus who saw himself as a man who was once a sinner and is now saved by grace of God alone. He painted a self-portrait. He's got a picture of, of himself in there. And similar to Matthew, Rembrandt was giving testimony to the fact that he was once a sinner and that Jesus died to save him from that sin. And this is the same posture that Matthew writes with here. It seems to me that throughout Jesus' ministry, he was drawn to the people that were on the fringes of society, and he was continually reaching into the lives of the untouchables, those who would have been rejected by society and shunned. Think of the woman at the well. Think of the man with leprosy. Think of the centurion at the scene when Jesus was crucified, and now Matthew, and the story of Matthew here. Matthew would have known rejection like anybody else, and as well as anybody else, because he would have been politi considered politically unacceptable. He would have been somebody that was, not un that was not accepted politically. He collected taxes for a living. That's what he did. And so he was seen as somebody who was collaborating with the authorities that could not be trusted. And he was the IRS agent of his day, for sure. And I'm not sure about you, but I'm not, yeah, if you're an IRS, I'm sorry if you're an IRS agent, that's kind of thing. But, but for most, that was enough to keep him at bay from most things. 
But in addition to that, the tax collectors would often take more than they were, than they were owed, and they would pay themselves and give themselves the money. And they would, they would do this under threat of maybe somebody going to prison if they didn't, they didn't pay it. There's so many different taxes, whether it was an income tax or a, a road tax or a bridge tax or a, a harbor tax or any of those sorts of things. It was all these different things. And since they were in a town called Capernaum, which is where they were, which was a place where all these roads came together, Matthew would have been in a prime location to have been collecting many, many, many taxes. So he would have been politically unaccepted. He would have also been socially, he would have also, I'm sorry, would have been religiously unaccepted. He was considered unclean. The Jewish law in Leviticus actually barred him from actually going into the synagogue to worship. He would not have been able to cast a vote, would not have been able to, uh, to testify in court. He would have been con- considered completely religiously unacceptable. And thirdly, he would have been socially unacceptable. There's a word that people did, that people, people who did not uh, keep the letter of the law uh, was used for them. They were referred to as people of the land. That sounds like more than one word, but that's the way it translates into English. Jews were forbidden from traveling with them. They were forbidden from doing business with them. They could not give or receive anything from them. They couldn't go to their home, and they could not have them in their home. Matthew was one of these. That's who he was. Does it paint a dark enough picture in your mind to understand who this guy was that Jesus called out and said, follow me? Jesus reached out to the unaccepted. Is there ever a time when you've maybe felt like you are unacceptable? How could God love me? How could God actually love me? And you struggle with that and you go, I'm going to keep God at bay because there's no way that he could love me because of this, because of that. Jesus reached out to the untouchables. Have you ever felt untouchable? The incredible thing is, despite all of these sorts of things, uh, being politically and religiously and socially unacceptable, these religious, these, these self-righteous Jews and how they saw him, Jesus accepted him just as he was just as he was. And therefore, Matthew was accepted by God, which is really what mattered in the end. This is not just Matthew's story, but maybe it's yours too. Maybe there's a point in your life where you put your faith in Jesus and you're actually able to recognize that God forgave you of all the things from your past, all the things of your future, and recognize you and says, someday you'll be with me in paradise. And Jesus calls Matthew and he says, follow me. And just like the paralyzed man, when Jesus called him, Matthew did the same thing. He got up, he responded, and he followed him. Although Matthew doesn't say it, the account of Matthew and Luke tells us that when he did get up to follow Jesus, it says that he left everything. He left everything behind. He left his job, he left his position, he left his income to follow Jesus. Folks, Matthew was probably a rich man, (laughs) And the fact is, is that for him to step away from all that to follow Jesus speaks something of who he was and how he saw Jesus. In this chapter, we see the opposition of Jesus. The opposition to Jesus was just, was just beginning in this point. This is the first time in the Gospels when we see the opposition to what Jesus was claiming to be. And despite this, people were bringing their friends to Jesus 
Others were trying to get to, to, to were trying to keep people from Jesus. And this opposition to Jesus clearly began here when Jesus forgave the paralyzed man of his sin. They said only God can forgive sin. And they accused him of blasphemy. And even in the next few verses, there are more accusations coming. And these verses gives us at least, give us at least one more accusation that I want to land on in the remainder of our of our time here. They accuse Jesus of associating with tax collectors and sinners. They accused him of doing that. In other words, this is actually an attack on the morals of Jesus. It's an attack on his, on his morals. If he associated with them, then he must be like them. That's what they were saying. He was with sinners because he liked and wanted to share in their sin. That's what they were saying. And Jesus' response to this criticism with an illustration born out of the Old Testament. He says in verse 12, he says this. He says, but when he heard this, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Today, when someone's sick, they go to the doctor or they go to the hospital if you're a man in this room, you probably do neither. You just go, I'm just going to get over this, and I'm just going to muscle my way through this. I, I know I'm one of them. I get that, that kind of thing. But in Jesus' day, there were no doctors. Sorry, man. I just kind of threw that out there. There were no doctor's offices, and there were no hospitals. And so what happened is that doctors would actually go, and they would make house calls. They would go to where the patients were. And so basically what Jesus is saying here is that he is a doctor of the sick people. They're sick souls. And to treat the sickness, the sin, he had to go where the people are, to go where the sickness was. And the people would have understood this. And this was not to imply that his critics were healthy in any way. We'll unpack that later on in chapter, in chapter 9. But they were actually as paralyzed by their sin as the paralytic that was lowered in front of Jesus. And they were actually as unclean as the ones they despised, like Matthew. What this does mean is that Jesus was right to act as he did. Jesus was right to respond to the Pharisees and their doubt and their, what they said. He was right in the moment because if the Pharisees were actually the spiritual leaders they claimed to be, they should have been trying to reach the lost just like Jesus was. Jesus also challenged them to look at their actions. And he did this by quoting a verse out of Hosea chapter 6 and verse 6. And, here's, and the background is simply this. Hosea was, had, had been attacking and been attacked by false religions. And, and, and he had been kind of pushing back against these false religious teachers of his day. And he said the people were saying that they were following God. But because, because they were doing the right things and were to be seen by others when in fact their hearts were far from God. It was all about the appearance of what it was they were doing. And so he called it out and he said this. He said, he quoted from Hosea, he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. In other words, he, we, are you acknowledging God or are you acknowledging the burnt offering? Are you acknowledging what it is you bringing or are you acknowledging the object of that offering in real time? Interesting side note is that Jesus said this same verse in Matthew chapter 12. It seems like it probably was a favorite verse of his. But the point in both instances when he quotes it is to say that if you were truly right with God, you would show mercy to the lost and seek to call them to repentance and faith, just like Jesus was. 
He wasn't just calling them to do it. He wasn't saying, that's just how you should live. He's actually saying, that's what I'm doing. Do as I'm doing. The conversation seems to kind of end uh, in this passage right there with Jesus saying, I've come to call right, called, uh, I've not come to call righteous, but sinners. And the call in this verse is to put faith in Jesus as their Savior and to set aside all the outward displays of good works that they were comfortable with and were doing as a means of somehow appeasing God. I wonder what it looks like, what real faith actually looks like. What does it really look like for somebody to put their faith in God? What are some of the barriers that maybe somebody has of putting their faith in God and how do we overcome them? I started teaching with those questions and by telling you this, that the object of your faith is what really matters. It cannot be about the intensity of your perceived, or your perceived strength to hold on to your faith. It, the object of your faith is not Jesus alone to save you and you think that you are good enough to make God love you. I'm just gonna tell you that you're mistaken because that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible does teach that the only way that we can stand before God is by putting our faith in Him and making Him the object of our faith, making Him the object of our devotion, the object of our life. He is the one who substituted Himself for you. He's the one who said that your sin is actually going to separate you from me. And God was saying that. And he said, I'm actually going to send Jesus to die for your sin because there's no other way. There is death that must happen for your sin because sin separates you from God. I can't look at it. And God said, no, there's only one way, and it's through Jesus. The only thing that we really need is to be healed from sin. And if God chooses to heal our sicknesses too, then we will praise him for that as well. I think that the way that you identify the object of your faith will help you see yourselves rightly. And I also see this passage reveals a few categories that, that you might fall into. And let me point them out to you. There's three of them. The first one is there are those who are far from God and think that they are near, like maybe the Pharisees. But how good is good enough? Pharisees were trying to live up to a standard that was there and a list of things that they needed to accomplish. But the question is, how good is good enough? What are the things that you are believing that is keeping you from being near to God? Is your motivation to keep the rules of religion? Or is your motivation to please God and to show Him? If I'm being honest, can I just tell you that I've spent most of my life in this camp? thinking that there's a whole bunch of rules that I can follow, that somehow God is going to be pleased with me. And i got to tell you that, that the truth is, is that most of my life I've, I've, I've followed Jesus. I, I came to faith at eight years old. And yet all of my life, I've, I've kind of felt like there were so many things that I needed to do to make God happy. And it wasn't until so, at some point I realized and I understood the gospel to truly hear and understand the gospel and see that it was enough that I did nothing, that Christ did everything for me. And I had to set aside the guilt, had to set aside the things that I was heaping on myself, the things that other people were saying and putting on me, and the things I was responding to. So many of you might identify with that really well. 
being caught up in thinking that somehow you can follow the list of rules and regulations and pleasing God. And let me just tell you real honestly, this is called legalism. This is called legalism. And quite honestly enough, it is easy. Legalism is super easy. It's easy to say, I've got a list of things I need to do. You work in the kitchen, there's a punch list of things you've got to do. To work. By the way, if you want to work in your desk, great. Well, I'm going to talk to you about that. But if there's a list of things to do, you check them off the list as you work down that list. Oh, I did it, I did it, I did it, and you've got to get it all done. But I've got to tell you that that's also bondage. It's also this amazing thing where you're putting yourself in bondage in that moment. This is why Jesus pushed so hard against the Pharisees. They were holding themselves hostage to their own rules. Will you find your connection card? That blue card that maybe you came in this morning. And go ahead and grab that for just a quick second because there's some next steps that I want to point out uh, to you on this. Because maybe this week you need to pray and ask God to reveal legalism in your life. And I want to pray with you. We, the staff wants to pray with you this week that you would actually be able to find freedom from that and step beyond that and step into the true freedom and setting aside the, setting aside the bondage. Just like the Pharisees, I think the good things that we try to do have the best of intentions or we feel like we are making God happy with us. But really all we're doing is tightening the bondage that we may already feel. Let us pray for you this week. The second one is that, is that there are those who are far from God and actually know it. Kind of like the paralyzed man. Far from God and actually know it. You sit here today watching online today and you're very aware of how far you are from God and you're resisting him. You know the sin in your life that's paralyzing you and for some reason you're either unwilling to confess it to God or maybe it's something that is so ingrained in you that you're afraid of what you might lose if you actually let it go. Wasn't that the plight of the paralyzed man? Wasn't that well, the man in this passage? And I really wonder what this man would have been if it wasn't for the community of people around him that brought him into the presence of Jesus that said, we're going to do whatever we can to put this man in front of Jesus. Early in the service, we prayed for people that we know that are lost. But here's the thing, is that we also need to be not just praying for them, but seeking those opportunities to speak truth into their lives so they have an opportunity to respond, to put them in front of Jesus, inviting them to be in church with us so they can hear the gospel, also speaking the truth and the gospel to them as we talk to them. What if you were to confess today and begin to live in true freedom? Letting yourself be lowered into the presence of God where he's waiting to heal you. So the nature of keeping up when you know it's just a facade is just exhausting. It's a burden and it might just feel like an anchor around your neck. Today could be the day when you choose to let go of that. The Bible says in Matthew 11, it says, Come to me, all you who labor and heavy burden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Folks, that's truly where rest is. Truly, when we step aside out of that position of leader and say yes to Jesus. There's another option on your connection card where you can say, I'm actually going to meditate on that verse this week. I would encourage you to do that. And finally, there are those who are far from God and don't even know it. Kind of like Matthew. 
Maybe this is you, and you're hearing a message today, and, and, and you're ready to respond like Matthew did and give your life to Jesus because he's calling you today. What I'm asking you to do is a hard thing because it calls us to surrender our lives to Jesus. And it is really hard for us to say, I am no longer in control. I actually am going to allow God to control me, to guide what I do, to guide what I say. Let him lead your life instead of you. And quite honestly, again, folks, this is hard. But I can tell you that it is freedom. There's that freedom in the hard thing there. Matthew heard God call and he responded. Will you do that today? It's sort of like that antique chair that I started talking about. The object of your faith is what matters. And faith is like this. Faith is putting your, faith, putting your trust away from something that you're currently trusting in into something totally different. And it's transferring your trust from where you currently are and stepping into something completely different and actually resting on it and knowing that it's going to hold you. Knowing that it's going to hold you. Real faith takes a focus off me and shifts my gaze to Jesus. This is also what it looks like to put your faith in Jesus. You stop trusting yourself and trying to be good enough, knowing that you can't be good enough. Make Jesus the focus of your faith in all things. We do this every week, and we just ask that we just take a moment and bow our heads, close our eyes, and say, Jesus, what are you telling me today? Lord, in in an honest moment, I I pray that through the stammering and stuttering and fast-talking lips that I have, God, that somehow the truth of who you are has come through. And Lord, that we would respond in faith and trust you. Lord, maybe there's some people that need to step out of the bondage of legalism. God, would you give them the courage to do that? Lord, maybe there's people here that actually need to step into faith with you for the first time. God, would you give them the courage to do that? To step out of the leadership role and step into trusting you and you alone. God, thanks that your spirit works in us and guides us. Show us what it means to respond in this moment. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us. If you'd like to learn more about Lighthouse Community, check out our website at mylighthousecommunity.com or connect with us on Facebook. You're invited to join us live Sunday mornings at 909 or 1111. Thanks again for listening to the Lighthouse Community Podcast.